You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. Amen. Good morning. Happy Advent. My name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and we enter today the season of Advent. If you, uh, if you have never recognized the season of Advent before, or you've done this a hundred times, or you're sitting there saying, what is this word that Nick keeps using, Advent? I'm not even familiar with it at all. You are all welcome here before the feet of Jesus. Advent simply means this. It is the arrival of something very important. Okay, And we are a people, as the people of God, who live between Advents, um, that Christ has come into the world. He has been born in a body. He's been brought near to us. God has drawn near to his people through the person and work of Jesus. And we are awaiting the second Advent, that Christ is coming again. And friends, that's what we're doing here on Sunday morning is we are remembering that Christ has come and changed everything and that he is going to return again and make everything wrong right. And so for many of us, as Ben was alluding to this earlier, that as we get into the holiday season, goodness, you see and sense dysfunction maybe more than you do any other time of year. You see that the person is not at the dinner table and they were last year. You see the broken relationships, the difficulty, the stress that gets bound up in this whole season. This morning, we are trying to draw our eyes back to Jesus. He's the point of all this. He is the hope of all this. And friends, over over here by this tree, you see a wreath sitting right there with a few different candles. And the first one this week is lit traditionally um, Advent, the first candle that we lighted, represents hope. And so, friends, you have hope in Jesus. I want to remind you this morning. Listen to these words from 1 Peter. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Friends, Jesus did not just die for you in some spiritual sense that doesn't actually mean anything. Listen, you have a living, breathing hope. Christ is alive. And that's what we get to celebrate this Christmas season, that he really took on flesh for us. And so I invite you, reflect on the hope. Take this time, reflect on the hope-giving power of the gospel. Um, if you're new here, I especially want to welcome you. There should be a blue card in the seat back in front of you. Um, if you fill that out and drop it in the joy box in the back center of the room, that's a great way to get connected um, to the work of a local, this local church. And friends, this is the way God has designed us to walk with him and follow him is in, in solidarity with a local group of people. And so 
Friends, we'd love to invite you into that. That's good. The good news is that anybody can get in on this because of what Jesus has done for us. I want to move us to a moment uh, of giving and greeting before we get into today's teaching text. Our brother Caleb is going to bring the first word from this Advent series this week. I'm excited to hear from you, brother. Lord be with you as you, as you preach the word. Um, and for us, I want you to begin to prepare your hearts. Even right now, ask God to make you soft to his word. Amen. Um, we're going to give to the work of the Lord of planting churches and making disciples in this city far beyond. And we're going to greet one another as family. Let's go ahead and stand up, greet one another, and Caleb will be up soon. Good morning, New City. Morning. My name is Alice, and I'll be reading our sermon text this morning, which comes from Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. Please join me in standing out of reverence for God's word. So, Luke 2, starting with verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. This is God's word. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Alice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day, another Sunday morning to be with God's people. What I pray now as we open your word that you would give us right understanding. Um, if we don't understand your word rightly, then we're wasting our time. So Father, help us to understand what you are trying to communicate to us. And as we do that, Father, I pray that your spirit would take the understanding and just drill it deep down into our hearts so that it would change us. Father, may there be uh, fertile soil this morning on every human heart as we um, see the person of Jesus revealed in this text. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, today begins our new sermon series on Advent. As we've already said, you know, the word Advent just simply means arrival or coming. Obviously referring to the arrival of the Messiah. Um, it's meant to lead us up to Christmas Day as we anticipate um, celebrating the birth of Christ together. Now, if you're like me, and maybe you are, maybe you're not as cynical as I am, um, but I have a, a love-hate relationship with the Christmas season. Maybe you're similar. On the one hand, I love Christmas. I do. I love the story of the birth of Jesus. I love the old hymns like, O Holy Night, O Come All You Faithful, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I mean, there's so many good Christmas hymns out there. I love gathering with family, eating good food, the lights, the trees, how society shuts down for a couple days because whether they realize it or not, um, they're acknowledging that Jesus was born of a virgin 2,000 years ago. There's so much to love and to celebrate about Christmas, right? But every year, more and more things I dislike about Christmas. 
all the distractions that come with it, right? The commercialization, the terrible movies, <laughs> all the Santa Claus, the Santa Claus nonsense, the terrible music. I'm not talking about the old hymns that exalt Christ, but the secular, godless drivel, like, we wish you a Merry Christmas, we wish you a silver bells, deck the halls with bells. I don't even know what the words are, right? There's so many, you just hear them, it's just noise, it's just background noise, right? Um, and then of course, the, 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 the modern Christmas music that assaults our ears over and over like that Mariah Carey monstrosity that will go unnamed because once you say the name, it's like an earwig that just drills itself down into your brain and then lays eggs that hatch out every November and come torment you again and again, right? But we see this everywhere, right? It's like there's two different celebrations happening simultaneously. They're both called Christmas, but one has removed Christ from the picture. There are those who recognize Jesus as the Messiah, born of a virgin, introduced by angels, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, shrouded in mystery and majesty. And then there's the celebration that never extends past family, food, presence, and something called the Christmas spirit. Many in our culture actively go out of the way to avoid talking about Jesus or making any reference to him whatsoever, even though everyone in the world knows why Christmas exists. It's in the name of the holiday. My purpose here today is to do everything I can to keep us from being distracted by the empty substitutes for, this, for the Christmas season. If we miss Jesus, friends, we miss everything. And every year, at least for me, it becomes easier to miss Jesus. Our God is infinitely holy and wise and good. And even in these opening verses of Luke chapter 2, His holiness, His wisdom and goodness are revealed to us. But God never does things the way that we think He will. With God, things might look one way on the outside, but something much deeper, much greater, much more glorious is going on underneath. Sometimes this is called a paradox. So today, in these opening verses of Luke 2, I want us to meditate on three paradoxes that highlight the glory of the Christmas story. And my hope is that as we meditate on these truths, our hearts will soften, our love for Christ will increase, so that as we enter this Advent season, we won't miss Him. We will love Him more. The first paradox I want us to see in Luke 2, verses 1 through 7, is the historic and miraculous birth of Jesus. The historic and the miraculous birth Look in verses one through five. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. 
What we see here is the historic and yet the miraculous birth. The birth of Jesus was grounded in history and historical facts, and yet it was miraculous. It took supernatural intervention. See, the Christian faith is not communicated to one man in secret on supposed golden tablets. Now here Luke tells us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a real city. You can go there today. And the reason he was born there is because the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, called for a census that required Jesus' parents to travel to Bethlehem from Nazareth, which is another real city. Jesus had a real biological mother and an adoptive father. They were real people who lived at a specific time in history. Joseph was a descendant of King David, who was a descendant of the tribe of Judah. So we see that the birth of Jesus didn't happen under secret, hidden circumstances. Those who lived during that time were able to tie his birth to specific events, specific locations, and specific world leaders. In fact, Luke, our gospel writer, tells us at the beginning of his gospel that eyewitnesses and ministers delivered this information to him and that he followed these events closely and that his purpose is to write an orderly account so that we, his readers, might have assurance of what we have heard about Jesus. Friends, the Christian faith is not blind faith. That's what Hollywood wants us to think. That, oh, we just have faith, right? It's just faith. You just believe something, whether there's any evidence for it or not, that's faith. That is not the Christian faith. The Christian faith is rooted in history. The Bible is more than a history book, but it is certainly not less than a history book. And yet, intermingled with these historic, concrete events is the miraculous. Jesus, born of a virgin. Flip back a page or two maybe, uh, depending on your, your Bible, back to chapter one, verse 30, it says this, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And what is Mary's response? How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The virgin birth, church, is not about Mary. It's about the identity of our Savior. Amen. He is a man, but he is unlike any other man who has ever been born. You see, the long line of inherited sin from Adam was broken by the miraculous intervention of the Holy Spirit. This baby that would be born would be different. His bloodline would consist both of man from Mary's side and of God. He would be fully man and fully God. This is a miracle that defies the natural order 
And yet it actually happened in time and space to real people in a real place. You see, this baby born of God and man would grow up in a real place. He would work as a real carpenter. He would eat real food, make real friends, perform real miracles, heal real people. He would upset real leaders. He would be arrested by real soldiers, be beaten with real whips, crucified on a real cross, and buried in a real tomb. All that actually happened. It's historical fact. And three days later, his real physical body would walk out of that tomb. Never to die again. He would show himself to over 500 people and then he would bodily ascend up into heaven where he now sits as king over all. And friends, Anyone who turns from sin and trusts in his atoning death will have their sins really forgiven, for real. This is not wishful thinking. This is not abstract spirituality. This is not the power of positive thinking. It is sin canceled, debt erased, adopted into the family of God. It is a real thing. And it's real, and it's a supernatural work of God. You see, what's amazing about the Christian faith is it's not a blind faith. It does not defy reason. It is not illogical or inconsistent. It is a faith rooted in history, recorded by eyewitnesses during the lifetimes of other eyewitnesses. And yet, it consists of supernatural events that took place in time and space. Friends, we have confidence this morning that Jesus is Lord because we have the historical record. But we can also know him personally because anyone, any one of you who confesses him as Lord can be saved right now, today. The second paradox we see in this text is both the planned and the prophesied location. The planned and the prophesied. When I say the planned, I mean planned by man. The planned and the prophesied location. Proverbs 16 says, in his heart a man plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. That's what I mean. The man, man plans his way, but the Lord is really the one in charge. This is what we see in our text. The location of the birth of Christ was brought about by normal providential circumstances, and yet it happened exactly as the prophets foretold. We're told that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right? The city of David. We know from the book of Matthew, kind of have to go outside of Luke for a second here, but from, we know from the book of Matthew that being born in Bethlehem was a fulfillment of the prophecy from Micah chapter five. Micah five says, you, O Bethlehem, are too little among the clans of Judah, for from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Okay, so Matthew says that's a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. That's why Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So even though Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth, the Messiah couldn't be born there because according to Micah 5, he had to come from Bethlehem. But 
according to Matthew 2, God would call his son out of Egypt. Well, that's weird. That's a reference to Hosea 11, another prophecy about the coming Messiah. And then in Matthew, we read that Jesus' parents took Jesus to Egypt after he was born in order to escape the murderous rampage of King Herod. Okay? But then again, in Matthew 2, we're told the prophets foretold that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. Wait a minute. Does he come from Bethlehem? Does he come from Egypt? Or does he come from Nazareth? Anyone looking at these prophecies would probably be confused. How can all of these things be true? Is the Messiah from Bethlehem, Egypt, or Nazareth? And the answer is, of course, all three. We are given explicit detail about exactly how all of these prophecies came to fulfillment. Jesus' family was from the town of Nazareth. As we read in our text, a political order from a pagan Caesar required them to travel to Bethlehem, where he was born. Another political order, which was the murder of all children aged two and under from Herod, required them to flee to Egypt until Herod died, at which time they returned to Nazareth. Now, think about all the people and all the circumstances that had to play out in order for these events to happen the way that they did. Why did Caesar Augustus decide to take the census at this time? I'm sure he had tons of reasons, right? All kinds of reasons. And I bet none of them had anything to do with any Old Testament prophecy. Why were Mary and Joseph living in Nazareth at this time? Probably a hundred reasons why, right? I bet none of them had anything to do with any Old Testament prophecy. In Matthew, why did Joseph choose to take Jesus to Egypt when Herod was trying to kill him? Probably lots of reasons. Probably none of them had anything to do with fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And on top of all of this, remember that the Jewish people were not in charge during this time. They were under Roman Rule. They were being ruled by oppressors and tyrants who regularly persecuted God's people and had no interest in the coming Messiah. Now, let me ask you a question. If God can orchestrate all these events down to this level of detail to fulfill his promises... And he can do it while using massive political events involving thousands of people and pagan leaders. And if he can use regular people making regular decisions about life, why do we doubt his sovereign control mm -hmm. over the events of our lives and our times? <laughs> Are you angry or anxious about those in power in our day? Man, I am. I get angry, friends, when I look at the state of our culture and what is happening. But fear not, friends. We live under the rule of a sovereign God. 
Are you angry or anxious about your future, who you might marry, what job you might take, what sicknesses you might contract, where you might live, how much money you're gonna make? Fear not, friends. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. And from the moving of a molecule to the moving of a mountain, he is in charge. You might be here saying something like, yeah, Caleb, but I'm not the Messiah, right? It makes sense that God would orchestrate world events to bring about such an amazing, miraculous thing like the coming of the Messiah, but does God really guide the circumstances of my life in the same way? Well, first, to answer that question, I just want to encourage you, read the Bible from start to finish. If you haven't done that, I urge you, commit to doing it. Read it from start to finish because you can't make any sense out of it. You can't make any sense out of this world unless you understand the redemptive history of Scripture. God is clearly the one in charge. Don't wait till New Year's Day to start your new Bible reading plan. Start it today. But also, if you're struggling because you, you don't think God really cares that much, if you don't think God's really in control of the circumstances of your life, just listen to the words of Jesus. From the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, friends, the circumstances and events of your life are no less ordained than the birth of the very Son of God. Because here's how it works. If God's not in control of everything, then he's in control of nothing. And God, if God is in control of anything, then he's in control of everything. This is the most comforting news to those who belong to him. The circumstances of the birth of Jesus serve as another reminder that every world leader, every common man, does God's bidding. One of the reasons I love the Christmas story is because every sentence reminds us that behind and underneath every decision is the sovereign plan of God worked out to bring about his redemptive purposes. And what are those redemptive purposes? This brings us to our third paradox. The third paradox we see in our passage is the lowly baby and the incarnate Son of God. The lowly baby and the incarnate Son of God. Of course, the most significant paradox we see has to do with the very person 
and identity of the Messiah himself. The baby born in a stable, surrounded by dirty, smelly animals, was not just the long-awaited Messiah, he was the very image of the invisible God. There is a reason this picture is on display in nativity scenes all over the world. Mary and Joseph, the baby in a manger, in a barn, surrounded by animals. The scene is simple in appearance and yet stunning in significance. It is both common in its appearance and yet cosmic in its significance. Why? Because the lowly baby in the manger was the very word of God made flesh. Listen to how other parts of the New Testament describe the nature of this person. Mm. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He, this is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The nativity scene is glorious because we know the identity of the baby in the manger. He is superior to angels, the exact imprint of the nature of God. He upholds the universe by his word, and he alone makes purification for sins. Colossians 1 describes this baby this way. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 2, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. (laughs) This is amazing, friends. This is the word of God made flesh. God himself taking on human form, born of a virgin. Philippians 2, we already read earlier, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God (coughs) the Father. You see, Jesus was born into the lowliest of circumstances, and yet he was the king of the entire universe. What does this mean for us? This should put our own hearts in check this morning. You see, the Christmas scene, the nativity scene, reminds us that the kingdom of, in the kingdom of God, humility comes before glory. Humility comes before glory. In the kingdom of God, the first will be last, and the last will be first. In the kingdom of God, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself before the Lord, and in due time, he will exalt you. This is how things work in his kingdom. 
Friends, are you seeking glory for yourself today? Maybe you don't seek worldwide fame or external greatness, but maybe, maybe you post things online to draw attention to yourself. Maybe you gossip and put others down to exalt yourself. Maybe just deep down in your heart, you long to be thought well of by others. But friends, not even the Son of Man came to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. Humility comes before glory. The Christmas story is glorious because nothing is as it seems. The glorious one is is shrouded in mystery. The king of kings is clothed in poverty. The prince of peace is born into a world of conflict and pain. The most powerful man to ever walk the earth was born in a barn because no better room could be found for him. One commentator describes it this way. The contrast between the birth's commonness and the child's greatness could not be greater. The promised one of God enters creation among the creation. The profane decree of a census has put the child in the promised city of messianic origin because God is quietly at work and a stable is the Messiah's first throne room. Things are not as they seem, friends. Christmas is glorious because Jesus is glorious. God puts his son on display in ways that confound us. We would never do it this way, would we? And that's what makes it all the more profound. What does all this have to do with us today? There's three things I wanna leave us with. When we meditate on the circumstances of the birth of Jesus, we see first, God is always at work. God is always at work. No matter how mundane or ordinary our circumstances may seem, this means there's no such thing as a meaningless moment, friends. Every moment is ordained. Every moment is meant for God's purposes. There's never a meaningless moment. There's never a meaningless word or a meaningless job or task. Do everything you do with purpose because God is using you to accomplish his plans on earth. That's first. God is always at work. Number two, God keeps his promises often in ways we will never expect. We don't see it because we don't see everything. God keeps his promises in ways we never expect. This is meant to silence our pride and exalt the wisdom of our great God. Is your life difficult today? Are the circumstances of your life less than what you had hoped? Do not fear, friends. You are not forgotten. God has promised to never leave you or forsake you. We see the outward appearance but God sees everything. So that's two. He keeps his promises in ways we will never expect. And number three, finally, look to Jesus today. We don't worship Jesus today as that lowly baby. 
He grew up. We know the story. We read the story of Jesus in the manger and we see the glory revealed there. But Jesus, friends, right now is resurrected from the dead. He has ascended into heaven and he sits as ruler and king over the entire universe. Look to him today. Humble yourself before him. Turn from your sin and trust in him. You see, the humble find forgiveness and glory, but the arrogant are cast out. Those whose hearts are soft acknowledge their need for forgiveness, and they find grace in their time of need. Friends, don't miss Jesus this year. Look at this book. Marvel at the God who entered this broken world to make all things new. Let's pray. Father, thank you for thank you for the scriptures. I love your word. Because I'm not creative enough, I'm not um, clever enough to convince people to believe your words. There is so much power in your word. So Lord, I pray that now, by your spirit, you would penetrate hearts, soften hearts. I pray that something we heard or something we saw in your word today would bring about new behaviors, new habits, a new love for Jesus, that we would be changed from one degree of glory to another. May New City, may the impact that New City has in this community last for generations because we trust you in your word. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. We're gonna enter now into a time of response. We never wanna hear God's word and fail to respond in some way. In New City, we do this in three ways. First, we, we, we reflect on what we've heard. Maybe you've heard something today that has stuck with you. You can't get it out of your mind. Maybe it's a truth from God's word or whatever. Reflect on that. We're gonna take some time and just silently reflect on the things that we've heard today. Next, we're gonna remember. This is a time where we obey what the scripture tells us um, about the Lord's Supper. We're gonna observe the Lord's Supper together. We have baskets up front and in the back where you can, after a time of short reflection, come forward, take the elements, uh, the the wafer and the cup um, whenever you are ready. And then last, we're going to rehearse. This is a time where we sing. What are we rehearsing for? We're rehearsing for the day where we will do this in the presence of God for all time. See friends, one day when Christ returns at the second advent, He's going to make all things new. He's going to remake this physical world. And it's going to be a world without sin, without death and sickness and decay. We are going to live on this earth with Jesus as our king, worshiping him forever. It's going to be amazing. Today we're going to sing as we prepare for that day. So join me now as a time of silent reflection. And we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. And then we're going to sing.